Uh, what was on your mind when you uh, walked in this morning? Uh, what's on your mind right now? Perhaps uh, you are engaged with the story or perhaps your mind's starting to wander. The footy, the gardening you're going to do, perhaps later on this afternoon. The catch-up with the family. Perhaps you've got the election campaign on your mind and you've got a bit of unease about the direction of the country or international events. Or maybe there are bigger questions. Who you are, why you're here. Think about your life, the things that preoccupy you, that gain your attention, and then ask, why should it matter to me that almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus, from the village of Nazareth in Palestine, was crucified as king of the Jews. Because that's what the gospel story we heard is telling us, something it makes very prominent, that Jesus is dying as the king of the Jews. It's the first question Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? It's the last question Pilate asked the crowd, shall I crucify your king? And it's the charge that Pilate puts on the cross to mock and humiliate the Jewish officials he despises. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And it's a claim the religious leaders are aware of and want to correct. Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. And though Pilate wrote not from conviction, but to show just how weak the Jews were compared to the power of Rome, the Gospel tells us he wrote truer, than he knew. You see, Jesus had been recognised as king by Nathaniel at the beginning of the gospel. Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of the Jews. And he had been welcomed as king by the crowds on his entry to Jerusalem just six days before. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And in his dialogue with Pilate, Jesus accepts Pilate's suggestion that he is a king while making it clear that the source of his royal authority and nature of his reign was different from Caesar's authority and reign of any human king's authority and reign. My kingdom, he said, is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. So you are a king, Pilate asked. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. That is, it is as you say. Jesus is crucified as king of the Jews and Jesus dies knowing that he is truly king, king of the Jews. But why is that important to you and me? Because, let's face it, it's not a phrase that moves us or has much natural content. We don't have effective kings and most of us are not Jews. So to answer the question, we have to ask, what is it to be king of the Jews? Now, some of you might answer that to be king of the Jews is to be that promised, anointed king, a human king. Well, that would be true, but it's not the whole truth. You see, a human king, an anointed king like David, was just God's vice-regent, installed by the Lord to secure the welfare of the Lord's people, ruling by the Lord's gift, accountable to the Lord, to administer the Lord's law, his rule. The rule of the human king just pointed beyond itself to the rule of God over his people. Just like, for example, the rule of the colonial governor of Victoria pointed to the rule of the British Parliament and Crown. They were the real authority. 
And God is the real authority, the real ruler, the real king of his people, the Jews. God the Lord was and remains the real king of the Jews. That was made very clear actually in the Old Testament when a human king was first sought by the Jews centuries before. God had said then, they have rejected me from being king over them and Saul had reminded the Jews that the Lord your God was your king. God as king of his people was proclaimed in the Psalms and the prophets. For example, Psalm 98, make a joyful noise to the Lord the king Isaiah. The Lord is our judge, the Lord is our Lord giver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. God as the true king of his people is actually especially brought home to Isaiah at the time of his call. It's the Lord he sees as continuing to sit on his throne while earthly kings die. And Isaiah proclaims, My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. The Lord had made himself king of the Jews by delivering them from death at the Passover, by freeing them from slavery in Egypt and bringing them to Sinai to enter into a relationship with them, that covenant relationship that told them that the Lord was their king and the Lord was the source of their security and their peace. The Lord God is the king of the Jews and the gospel has made clear that in dealing with Jesus we are dealing with God. The identity of Jesus as God has been a very provocative issue throughout the gospel. The Jews several times seek to kill Jesus because of what he claims for himself, to be God, the Son of God. My father, he said in John 5, is working still and I am working. That's why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus had said, oh, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews sought to kill him. Again, in John 10, Jesus had said, I am the father of one. They pick up stones again to stone him. Even at the trial, the Jews still have this claim at the forefront of their mind. They're incensed by what they considered Jesus' blasphemy. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself son of God. Jesus claims to be God. In fact, Jesus has been identified as God, God incarnate, the eternal word become flesh from the beginning of the gospel. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And this word, we are told, became flesh and dwelt among us, the man Jesus. But this is stunning, isn't it? Think now who is hanging on the cross, the King of the Jews, God. Oh, not the Father, but God the Son, the incarnate God, the eternal Word who is God and with God, become flesh, dying now in his body of flesh, but God. Now what is the God-man doing hanging on the cross? Because this is so ungodlike. The creator subjected to the creature's will, without freedom, without dignity, mocked, without power, subjected to the creature's punishment, death. What is the true king of the Jews doing on the cross? What is he doing there? Well, exactly what he had said he would do. Exactly what the Lord had promised to do, save his people. 
When speaking of his kingdom, when accepting Pilate's suggestion that he is a king, Jesus had said, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Jesus was born to be king, came into the world to be king and in being king to bear witness to the truth of God. That bearing witness to the truth has a twofold sense to both reveal the truth about God and remember Jesus could say, he who has seen me has seen the Father and to show to demonstrate the faithfulness of God, the truth of his word. That is what he's doing on the cross. You see, God, the Lord in the Old Testament, had promised that he himself would come and save, save a people whose peace and life was lost through their rebellion and idolatry, who were subject to his judgment, could not even save themselves. We saw that in John 10 where Jesus fulfills God's promise in Ezekiel 34 to be the saving shepherd of his people while also being the promised David, human shepherd. But there are many other promises of God coming to save, God himself coming to save. Let me read you two from Isaiah. Isaiah, go up onto a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news, lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. There are others, but again Isaiah 63. Who is this that comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bosra, splendid in his apparel? It's I, and that's the Lord speaking, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. I looked and there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. Notice, did you, that those promises on Isaiah often speak of the Lord's saving action by speaking of what the arm of the Lord would do. The arm of the Lord is the Lord himself taking action. And wonderfully, it is the arm of the Lord, the Lord himself, who is promised to save in the sacrifice of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53. That promise already quoted by John in chapter 12 is being fulfilled in Jesus and that starts, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The Lord the king of the Jews, had promised to come and save his people. Now Jesus, the arm of the Lord, the incarnate God, is doing so. On the cross, he, the Son, is doing the work the Father gave him to do, the work of God. He said throughout his ministry that his words and works are the words and works of God. And this is never more true than on the cross. More as he lays down his life, as he said he would, we see with his final word, it is finished, that he knows he is completing the work the Father gave him to do. Well, what is that work? It's the wonderful work he's told us of throughout the gospel. It is ensuring, as he promised in John 5, that believers won't come into judgment. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. It's ensuring that 
believers will rise at the last day. I've come down from heaven, John 6, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Oh, his work is ensuring freedom from the power of sin for those who know and believe the truth about him, the truth that will set them free. It's ensuring that believers would have abundant life, the never-failing life of the age to come. And he makes certain all of this by his death. I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He makes certain his promises by his death as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. To take away the sin of the world. Jesus completes the Father's work, God's work of saving, by being the sacrifice God himself provided for the sins of his people, by being the servant of Isaiah 53, who in himself bears the sin of the people and so justifies, makes right with God the many. He says by being the son who drains the cup the father has appointed him, enduring God's just judgment on sin in the place of his people. Jesus in dying on the cross as the king of the Jews is doing what God, the king of the Jews, said he would do and doing what only he can do for he alone is and can be the saviour of his people. It is God's glory we see revealed here on the cross, that grace and truth, that love and faithfulness John beheld in the word become flesh. The glory of God that Paul says is seen in the face of Christ is seen in the face of Christ on the cross with the marks of the crown of thorns in his brow. It is because Jesus dies on the cross as king of the Jews that his death matters to you and I today. For judgment, slavery to sin and lies, death, the consequences of sin, of rebellion against God continue to be our issues for we sin. And the Lord, the King of the Jews, is the Lord of the whole earth, the creator of all. There is no other God besides him, no other saviour for any. And what he does on the cross is not just for Jews, but for all, for the world, for the rebellious world, the Father loved in the giving of the Son, for all who believe in him. All who believe, you and I today, know that freedom from judgment, freedom from slavery to the power and penalty of sin, that eternal life and hope of resurrection as his gift, the gift of God, know them because the Son of God died to secure them for his people and rose to show that he had. Yet, you know, sometimes even talk of freedom from judgment, freedom from the penalty of sin can seem so abstract. What does believing that Jesus... The king of the Jews died there on the cross to bring life and freedom look like. Let me suggest three things. Firstly, it looks like a life lived with a sure and rich hope, knowing that death will not have the last word. As you feel your own death closing in, as we do seeing first our parents and then our peers die. Oh, as we do, as we experience in our body failing and death, 
as death grows large on your horizon. Believing in Jesus is not being overwhelmed with the grief at the loss of all, being engulfed by despair. No, it's being able to live to the end, knowing that the end is just the beginning of risen life, of falling asleep to wake whole in the new heaven and earth where every tear is wiped away. And that's a hope that embraces all this weary and wounded creation. For the saving coming of God was to free his creation from its bondage to our folly and futility and bring the new creation. So living, believing that Jesus is the King of the Jews, dying there for sin, is to live with a sure and rich hope Oh, and and it's to live, it's to live with a life that has the possibility of a secure identity and integrity. You see, Jesus subjecting himself to Caesar's judgment, dying on the cross and then rising again, shows that there is an alternative king to Caesar, an alternative king with a greater authority, a better reign. It's the reign of God himself established on the power to give life, not the power to take life. Caesar's power, the power of the rulers of this world, is actually based, yes, on being able to give material rewards, but especially on the power to take life, to kill. In the end, it is ruled by fear, fear of punishment, and that is always a threat to identity and integrity. Did you see that serving Caesar cost the Jews their identity, driven by fear that the Romans would come and destroy them and hatred of Jesus, the Jewish leaders cry out, we have no king but Caesar. And they cease then to be the people of God. They lose their identity. Serving Caesar cost Pilate his integrity. Driven by fear of losing Caesar's friendship and indifference to God, Pilate condemns to death a man, as you heard, he had declared three times to be innocent. To serve Caesar in the place of God is in the end to lose your life while you're trying to save it. But serving this King Jesus who's lost his life to save ours, believing in him, gives you an enduring identity. You become children of God and Caesar can never take that from you for not even death can take that from you. And serving this King Jesus, you are given the foundation for a life of integrity like your Lord's who persevered in doing the Father's will, in doing what was right and just to the end. For serving this crucified king frees you from fear, fear of Caesar, for you are freed from the fear of death. And believing that the king of the Jews, the one who through all things, the one through whom all things were made, humbled himself to endure the creature's death, gives a life lived now in believing or a rich life. You see, our world wants us to think that this world is a closed world with nothing beyond human possibilities and nothing beyond this life. Theirs is a world where as you go through life, possibilities narrow. As you come to the end, the darkness closes in and there is no one to turn to. But if the eternal Son can hang as he did on the cross and on the cross testify to the faithfulness of the true creator God to keep his promise to save. Well, there are no limits to our God, especially not the limits of this creation. No limits to his power, no limits to his wisdom, no limits to his love. 
And we live lives that are open to the eternal God himself, open to knowing him for ourselves. And that means that the life of believers in Jesus, the King of the Jews, is a life of enduring and deepening love. A life which is a story of being loved forever and then being moved by that love to love one worthy of all our love, the God who first loved us, Father, Son and Spirit, and in loving him to love others. I don't know what you were thinking of or preoccupied when you came here this morning, but isn't it wonderful that we can remember the death of the King of the Jews? Because there is no better story than the Christian gospel, the story of the true God who saves at cost to himself, and no better life than the life lived, believing in Jesus, the crucified King of the Jews. If you know this, if you trust Jesus, the King of the Jews, well, give yourself time to think on his sacrifice for you and persevere in trusting him with thankful joy, trusting him for life that he will do as he has said he will do and he can do as he said he will do, he will raise you up. And if you don't yet know Jesus, the King of the Jews, and you'd like to know that story and in fact to be caught up in it yourself and so come to know for yourself hope and freedom, come and talk. Let us praise our Saviour for this perfect love that suffered and died to make us his own forever.